From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we'll be taking a look at how far medicine has come since the days of Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell and nursing pioneer Florence Nightingale in the 1800s. Dr. Mike McGee is a medical doctor and historian who is a graduate of Syracuse's Lemoyne College and Upstate Medical University's College of Medicine. He will contrast medical education and practice in the Victorian era to that of today, and he'll also explore the complex relationship between Blackwell, America's first female physician, and Nightingale, the founder of modern nursing. Dr. McGee is also the author of the book Code Blue, Inside the Medical Industrial Complex. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. McGee. Well, it's a pleasure to join you, Amber. Uh, it's good to be back home. I spent eight years at Lemoyne College and at Upstate Medical School, and uh, I always have been appreciative of having had a chance to spend that time in Upstate New York. Of course, you know that this year, Upstate is celebrating the 200th birthday of Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman to graduate medical school in America. She attended Geneva Medical College, a predecessor to Upstate Medical University. You graduated in 1973. As a historian, let's talk about the ways in which her education in the late 1840s would have differed from yours in the early 1970s, more than 130 years later. Well, my first introduction to Elizabeth Blackwell was actually on the first day of orientation in 1969. They took us up to the library and there was the impressive uh, oil painting of Elizabeth Blackwell. And next to it, there was a uh, three-page uh, explanation of who she was and where she had come from. And the phrase that I always remember is uh, on one of those uh, pictures, it said, this diminutive, softly spoken doctor with the glass eye was not a figure to be dismissed lightly. And uh, it was only years later that I had an opportunity to uh, really look into and understand her history and her uh, relations with uh, Florence Nightingale. And uh, all this proved to be true. She was complex, uh, self-assured, and uh, a impressive leader in her own right. Uh, but she always gave as good as she got in what was then a male-dominated profession. What was medical school like in the 1840s in terms of how many years was it and what kinds of classes made up medical education? Well, you know, as you know, uh, things were relatively primitive in America in the 19th century, even uh, compared to England, which uh, wasn't exactly the height of science. I mean, in England, uh, if you were going into healthcare, you could be what was then called a physician, or you could be a surgeon butcher, or you could be an apothecary. Uh, but the reality was that there was no germ theory, that the approaches that they took to healing were very invasive and quite primitive. And uh, in America, it was even worse. Um, this was true frontier medicine, especially for the first half of the 19th century. Um, and when Elizabeth Blackwell uh, came to the floor, she was um, a oddity at the time. Um, women uh, were not uh, very involved in medicine at all. Uh, 
Um, and she understood that uh, there would be progress ahead and she wanted to be part of it. Uh, the, the actual healthcare back then um, was a mixture of home remedies. Uh, it was often done by the women of a household who were carrying on an oral tradition. Um, there weren't really very many cures, but there were kind of these long-term views of how to prevent yourself from deteriorating. But uh, it was only in the latter part of the 18th century that we began to see significant scientific breakthroughs. Now, you used a term surgeon butcher. Were surgeons butchers? What is that? Well, some of them did do double duty, but basically what it reflected was the fact that uh, it was a kind of profession that was pretty brutal, pre-anesthetics. Uh, you know, you could get a knock on the head or you could uh, uh, get laudum uh, or, or alcohol and try to doze off. But the reality is that if you were going to have something removed, it was a painful process. And uh, obviously, the skill sets of these people were highly variable at the time. Wow. Well, in terms of the material that was taught, would any of it hold up today or would all of it be considered outdated? Were there things that they were taught back then that you would still be learning in class today? Yeah, there were. I mean, uh, if you look at uh, Blackwell's actual uh, coursework uh, in the Geneva Medical School, which was the predecessor of Syracuse's uh, medical school, she signed up for two 16-week courses. Each of them cost $62, which was a princely sum back then. Uh, you had to go through these two 16-week courses uh, within a two-year period. And you repeated the exact same lectures twice. Um, and those lectures included lectures in anatomy and physiology surgery, pharmacology, clinical practice, uh, pathology and chemistry, obstetrics, and even medical jurisprudence. Um, you had to, in between those courses, uh, scrape together whatever clinical uh, exposure you could, but it wasn't uh, any required clinical experience in order to graduate. Um, at the time that she went to medical school, there were about uh, 155 schools throughout uh, America, and uh, the, the schools themselves were largely for-profit schools, and very few of them, in fact, you know, somewhere in the area of maybe 15 or 20 out of the 155 even had a two-year collegiate requirement in order to then get into a medical school. So, as you might ex uh, expect, you know, you came out of these schools often uh, very unprepared for what you were going to encounter. So, it was mostly lectures during those 16-week segments? That, that's right. It was all lectures. It was a didactic course. There was no clinical exposure or clinical experience during the coursework. You were expected to go home in between uh, the two sessions and find clinical, clinical experience locally 
or if you had wealth, you could uh, travel and try to find it either at uh, one of the big cities in the United States, or you could often go overseas. Once you completed the uh, coursework, you never were licensed. There was no licensure at the time. But what you did get is a diploma and more importantly, letters of introduction. And so, for example, with Elizabeth Blackwell, uh, she was not exactly happy with uh, what she um, had been provided after she graduated. In fact, she wrote, they talked over my affairs, but gave me no important advice. To my great disappointment, no letters of introduction were prepared for me. Now, later on, they did give her letters of introduction and she actually traveled over to Paris uh, for clinical experience and she was focusing at that time on obstetrics, but wanted to become a surgeon. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Mike McGee. He's a graduate of Upstate Medical University's College of Medicine and of Lemoyne College, and he's a historian who has researched one of Upstate's most famous graduates, Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell. So it sounds like uh, in the 1840s, students didn't really have a, a specialty. It was more of a general medical education, or or did you see any of them specializing? Uh, very few of them were specializing uh, during the 19th century. Uh, they were uh, more focused on uh, competing directly uh, with healers of the day. As I said, many of these were the women of a family who were carrying down the oral tradition of healing within their own family settings, and they were focused on uh, long-term cures. And uh, what we saw was with the influx of doctors, the doctors became uh, much more uh, short-term focused and interventional. Uh, they were expected for the money that they were paid to deliver results. So they became uh, much more interventional and much uh, more short-term focus than uh, what the healers of the day had been. Now, in your Code Blue book, you criticized the American healthcare system for focusing on curing disease rather than working towards solving cultural or societal factors that determine a person's health. In Elizabeth Blackwell's day, do you think the focus was more on preventive care than it is today? Well, I think for for certain there was a longer term focus in general at the time. And I do believe that as we developed uh, in the 19th century, that began to shift to let's see some results. Now, uh, some of the tactics that they were using to deliver results were anything but uh, scientific. Um, in fact, you know, they relied on things like uh, better get it out than have it inside you. So emetics and laxatives and diuretics and expectorants, uh, whether they use scalpels or leeches or blistering or bloodletting, they, they were trying to release bad humors from the body. So, you know, all of this was based on, you know, a very limited understanding of science at the time, but uh, we did see rapid progress over the second half 
of that 19th century. And coincident with that, we saw the various different guilds of medicine arising with the American Medical Association and the American Osteopathic Association and the American uh, Homeopathic Association. Those three battled with each other for dominance and control. And by uh, the uh, turn of the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, the AMA seized control and, and they decided at that time uh, that they needed to uh, do a wholesale reboot of uh, medical education and uh, invested in a report, the Flexner Report, uh, with recommendations that many of the schools, in fact, most of the schools, be closed down. Uh, Flexner recommended 124 of the 155 be closed because they were of such poor quality. Uh, by 1920, 70 of those had closed, and by 1935, another 20 had closed. So um, what happened was that the schools, which were very variable and, uh, and happened to be mostly for profit, uh, began to shut down wholesale. And we went from some 28,000 students a year in 1904 all the way down to half of that amount uh, by 1920. Um, with that, we began to see progress in medicine, the emergence of germ theory, the use of clinical training uh, as part of the John Hopkins model of medical education and movement from these two-session, two-year events uh, to four-year medical schools as we know them today. So the length of the training was extended considerably and uh, there was more hands-on learning. Are there other major changes in the educational requirements today versus back then? Yes, uh, you know, the American Medical Association you know, has had a checkered history and, and of course in code blue, I do lay out all the different ways that they uh, managed to keep their guild intact and avoid competition and the profiteering that resulted from that. But at the same time, they are also the ones who, in the early 1900s who established the Committee on Medical Education. Uh, they established standards for the curriculum for medical schools and licensure approaches for uh, doctors, that series of examinations at the end of medical school. They also uh, brought into play the residency program and the various different specialties, but those really only uh, took off uh, during World War II and following World War II. If you were a specialist in the Army, you got a higher rank and were paid more and had a better living conditions over in Europe and elsewhere as part of the Army. And so people like my father, who was a... Uh, generalist physician in the U.S. Army during World War II, came out of that war wanting to be a specialist. And in fact, uh, the various uh, different benefits that were set up uh, for all soldiers coming back from the war, the GI Bill and so forth, uh, were allowed to be used by these generalist physicians like my father uh, to become the surgeon that he became. And in the medical and surgical specialties, then we saw an explosion of specialty medicine at the very same time that we saw 
the uh, exponential rise of pharmaceuticals and other interventional type of care. So uh, coincident with the development of specialty care, we had specialty medicine. Those two uh, joined hands. And uh, as a result, uh, we embraced a, a highly interventional, almost military approach to medicine. Uh, our uh, leaders at the time said, look, if we could just defeat disease the way we just defeated the Nazis, health would be left in the wake. And so we had a fundamental misunderstanding of what health was. They didn't see it as a holistic approach that involves social determinants like good nutrition and a clean environment and a steady job. Instead, they saw it as a battle against disease and simply wiping out disease would mean we'll all be happy and healthy. And of course, today we realize nothing could be farther than the truth. I mean, we've had four wars on cancer and we still have cancer. And uh, in addition to that, we have a healthcare system that is twice as expensive and half as effective as all of the comparator nations around the world. So we, we went astray uh, right after World War II. We never asked the most basic question, how are we going to keep America and all Americans healthy? Uh, and by not asking that question, we ended up with the healthcare system that we have today. We have to take a short break, but we'll be back with more from Dr. Mike McGee shortly. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is back. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with a medical doctor and historian, Dr. Mike McGee. Now, you've drawn comparisons between Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell and her contemporary, Florence Nightingale, who's considered the founder of modern nursing. What can you tell us about these two women? Well, I, I would say that they have a great deal more in common than what separated them. Uh, that said, they were lifelong sparring partners uh, who cooperated with each other, but also uh, were not hesitant to take each other down. First, let me just mention what they had in common. First of all, uh, they both had British identity. Uh, both of them had British citizenships, although Elizabeth Blackwell also was a U.S. citizen. Uh, they were both very politically astute, so they maneuvered over uh, long lifespans, almost 90 years for both of them, uh, and found success by managing to um, live in a world that was gender controlled by men. They did not directly oppose male power, rather they figured out how to advantage it. Uh, they were both nonconformists and uh, strong uh, anti-slavery individuals. They had no interest in the Victorian women's sphere. Both of them were born almost at the same time as Queen Victoria, who then launched her long and successful Victorian era, but they had no interest in that. Uh, they wanted to function uh, in the world of men and not be held back by somebody else's vision of what women should be doing at the time. Uh, both had a heavy religious uh, kind of mission. They were focused on morality. They were focused on personal responsibility, committed spiritualists, uh, but also committed sanitarians. Uh, you could arguably say that these two were the ones that were the champions 
for uh, cleaning up the hospitals and focusing on uh, personal sanitary behavior as a way of controlling disease even before we had a formal germ theory. Uh, both managed to pursue war service for advancement, although Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War was a great deal more successful at it than was Elizabeth Blackwell, who tried to become involved uh, with the Union Army for the Civil War. Uh, both of them served as hospital managers, but Florence Nightingale, uh, you could easily say, is not only uh, the parent of the nursing profession, but also the parent of hospital management. She was a brilliant statistician. Uh, she measured everything. Uh, when she died, she left behind 9,000 personal letters in her archives. Uh, she was a detail-oriented person. Uh, both of them, by the way, were more interested in leading their professions than they were in actually practicing. Uh, Florence Nightingale didn't practice much nursing, nor did she necessarily run hospitals, but she was largely responsible for establishing uh, the rules of the game for hospitals. Elizabeth Blackwell also was more interested in leading women physicians and their medical education than she was being a physician. Her sister, uh, in fact, uh, uh, did spend her entire life practicing medicine, but Elizabeth Blackwell was uh, more dogged in making certain that women who did have the opportunity to be educated in medicine got the exact same education as men got at the time. And finally, both of them were scarred by disease. I mean, um, as you know, Elizabeth Blackwell lost one eye. Shortly after she arrived in Paris, uh, after her graduation, she got a gonorrheal infection in one eye during a uh, birth. And uh, she ultimately, within months, lost that eye and her hopes to become a surgeon. Uh, Florence Nightingale probably uh, suffered uh, uh, the results of uh, infectious disease that she got uh, during the Crimean War. But in addition, looking back on it, she probably also had uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from that experience and spent a good deal of her time bedridden, but still uh, very effective as a statistician and a uh, publisher of of various criteria. So that's all of the things that they had in common. But in addition, they were sparring partners, uh, and it could get quite nasty sometimes. So, for example, Elizabeth Blackwell wrote a letter to her sister in 1860 commenting on uh, Nightingale's uh, publishing of her famous nursing book. And what she wrote was, her little nursing book is welcome to me because I expected nothing higher. And uh, then in, in return, uh, you know, Nightingale could uh, give as, as, good, as good as she got. Uh, she wrote in 1890 uh, to Blackwell, I remember my impression of your character that you and I were on different roads, although to the same object, you to educate a few highly cultivated ones, I to diffuse as much knowledge as possible. So, you know, they were um, sometimes sparring partners, but often uh, ambitious moral crusaders who worked together 
not only in medicine, by the way, but also over in England uh, in the uh, latter part of the 19th century, they fought uh, for the rights of prisoners and for women, cleaned up the hospitals and helped uh, a, a great number of people as they were pursuing their own uh, clinical missions. Now, both of them lived to about 90, which life expectancy back then was about half that. So how did they each live so long? Well, you know, it's it's an interesting um, question. I mean, if you look at their lives, their lives uh, began almost within months of each other, and they ended up dying uh, within months of each other as well. Uh, they were, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, focused, number one, on a mission. They wanted more than anything else uh, to succeed, and they identified their missions early. Now, uh, neither of them ever left their clinical bases completely, but the reality was that uh, they were uh, trying to accomplish more than simply being individual clinicians. So Nightingale was totally focused on a statistical and evidence-based approach to improving hospital systems in the UK. And Blackwell was tremendously focused on uh, creating a medical education system for women that was second to none. Um, she was focused on that, not just because she thought women doctors for women patients was a good idea, but she really believed that women doctors would change the world. Uh, hers was a, uh, a social mission, a social campaign. Uh, so she was after the religious conversion of America's frontier culture uh, in line with her own religious views of what was right and what was wrong. And Nightingale as well. I mean, she, her religious awakening and embracing of nursing was at age 16. She came from a high, high level aristocratic family where women were expected and her sister did actually comply. Uh, with spending a life of luxury and philanthropy. She rejected all of that. And instead, she chose what was considered at the time a very lowly professing nursing. In fact, most of the nurses at the time functioned within homes, rich homes throughout uh, England. And the vast majority of them were under the age of 18. So here you've got uh, this a woman who's family friends literally were part of both houses of parliament who had access to the royal family and yet she chose to head off uh, to Crimea with uh, some 30 other nurses to a war zone and then uh, stayed on it um, and at the time that they died which was within months of each other they were both nearly 90 so I think it was a combination of passion, focus, and religious zeal uh, that kept them alive for roughly twice as long as the average life expectancy. 
This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Mike McGee. He's a medical historian and a graduate of Upstate Medical University's College of Medicine and of Lemoyne College in Syracuse. Historians don't have crystal balls, but the past can inform the future. I wanted to ask you what predictions you have about medical care and medical education in America over the next 100 or 150 years. Do you expect we'll have a cure for cancer, for instance? Well, um, my, my feeling is this, that uh, if we look at the trend lines, as I said before, you know, we have had four wars on cancer and we're still chasing that disease. Um, and I think what I've learned from that is, well, we may in fact have a scientific breakthrough for one or another of the types of cancer, or even for the basic process, and that would be great. Uh, but that is not the same as health and wellness, and that does not particularly assist us in building a system that can respond to something like COVID-19. Um, these are two very different things. Um, what we have now is a very well-developed and very profitable medical scientific research enterprise, which I believe can stand on its own two feet and should stand on its own two feet now and should not be considered a replacement for a true healthcare system. I believe that um, what we may see in the future, because it's what we need, is the emergence of a medical science planners and health uh, public health planners that are steeped in liberal arts. Now, why do I say that? Uh, because I think the greatest challenge in building a healthcare system that can manage things like uh, the pandemic or uh, the promotion of uh, healthy uh, infants and mothers or uh, the ability to um, uh, ha adapt behaviors that are not self-destructive. That kind of a healthcare system uh, requires planners. Uh, it requires people who make wise choices and are willing to take on priorities. And it applies to people who are uh, going to expend what are limited resources on the most important social determinants of health. And those individuals, I think, need to be wise and they need to have a broad education. Uh, they need to understand the social sciences. They need to understand economics. Uh, they need to understand basic public health and population health principles. So uh, since that is what I believe is missing and has gotten us into trouble, where literally we've lost in the last year or so uh, hundreds of thousands of lives that did not need to be lost, if that's what we need, then I'm hopeful that that's what we'll get. Uh, at the same time, I would expect that our great uh, scientific uh, entrepreneurial endeavors uh, that created the vaccines that we're relying on again um, will be able to stand on their own two feet and not uh, masquerade as if they are a healthcare system. I'm not a believer in the triple mission uh, that has historically defined physicians where we would say to ourselves, well, uh, every doctor is three things. They're a clinician, they're an educator, and they're a researcher. I don't believe that, that 
that that is true or even wise anymore. I believe that uh, being an educator and a clinician is um, uh, appropriate in that as we move to long-term visions, we need to be better educators with and about our patients and that that would be useful in establishing a healthcare system that's designed to uh, keep America and all Americans healthy and have equitable and fair and effective healthcare. But I believe that scientific researchers have become so profit-driven uh, that they should stand on their own and that if you want to do that, you should focus on that and not at the same time try to either make believe that you're a clinician or dabble in clinical medicine a little bit. And I think if you look at Blackwell and uh, Nightingale, they understood this. The truth of the matter is that while they led uh, in the areas of women's medicine and in nursing and in hospital administration, they focused on leading rather than practicing. And uh, that's what I'd like to see happen here as well. I'd like to see our clinicians uh, focus on hands-on patient care and consumer education. And I'd like to see our clinical researchers, whether they're attached to uh, hospitals or whether they work for pharmaceutical companies or insurers, I'd like to see them uh, pretty much focus on those bench side activities. And if they're going to be on committees that are government committees, I'd like to see them register as lobbyists. Who are the medical trailblazers today that future generations will likely be reading about? Well, I think what you're beginning to see is that they are social scientists. I mean, uh, these are the people who are looking at uh, the current status of our society and they're going back to the basic questions that we asked at the outset of creating this great country. Uh, our founding fathers were looking at what it takes to create uh, a group of people who on the one hand self-governed and on the other hand were willing to set up rules of the game for actual governance of a society. I think we're at that same point now. Uh, we almost need, I believe, our own Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee to look at our uh, several century long history and say, okay, uh, what is the truth about America? Uh, why is it that we have had the level of inequality and inequity that we have? And how do we correct that? I mean, after World War II, the leaders of Canada came back and the question they ask is, how do we make Canada and all Canadians healthy? And then they spent a decade coming up with a plan and another decade before they launched their Canadian healthcare system. It was built on solidarity and the idea that uh, if you don't have health, you are not able to reach your full human potential. Potential. We did not do that. We made believe that it could be replaced uh, just by scientific discoveries. But more than that, I think uh, this country needs to come uh, to grips with its own truth. Uh, we started the country 
uh, based on a lie. And that lie included that some of our citizens were only three-fifths of a uh, American. And uh, we've been struggling uphill ever since. If you look at our crisis now and the crisis we faced over the last four or five years, what is it about? It's about an inability to speak the truth, to admit to ourselves what our reality is. And until we do that together, uh, I think we're going to have problems. Now, uh, you say to yourself, well, what does that have to do with healthcare? Well, my belief is that health is at the core of a healthy society. If you're able to provide a series of health services fairly to each other, uh, that is the, the, the absolute foundation of a good and just and equal society. And I think we realized that after World War II when we created the Marshall Plan. When we created the Marshall Plan, we extended to our two vanquished enemies, Germany and Japan, national healthcare systems. It was the very first thing that we did in the Marshall Plan for those two countries was to establish universal healthcare. And we did that because we understood that without safety and security and well-being, we would never have democratic societies that emerged from those two vanquished enemies countries. What's interesting is our taxpayer dollars paid for their universal healthcare systems. But what was good enough for Germany and Japan was not good enough for our own citizens. So we need to go back to the beginning and readdress that inequity. And we need to establish a comfort with just plain telling the truth in America and dealing with uh, what needs to be done. What is one thing you would like today's young doctors to know about Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell? I'd like them to know that um, when you choose medicine, it is a holy endeavor. Uh, the great Cardinal Bernadine in Chicago was addressing a group of AMA doctors uh, back in uh, 2000, uh, shortly before he died. And he said to them, you know, there are four words in the English language that have common English roots. They are heal, health, whole, and holy. And he said, I'm telling you this because to heal in a modern world, you have to provide health. And if you're going to provide health, you've got to keep the individual, the family, the community, and society whole. And if you can do all that, why, that's a holy thing. Uh, well, that's what I want uh, everybody who becomes a physician to uh, embrace. Heal, health, whole, and holy. And to have that uh, judge their performance throughout a long and healthy life. That's what happened with Florence Nightingale. That's what happened with Elizabeth Blackwell. You asked why did they live long lives? I think because they understood and embraced the four H's. Well, thank you so much for this interesting look back. My guest has been Dr. Mike McGee. He's a medical historian and author of the book, Code Blue, Inside the Medical Industrial Complex, and a graduate of Upstate Medical University's College of Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.